Hello and welcome to the podcast of Britain Christian Church. We exist to be a lighthouse of hope to our community in OKC. Now, here's Pastor Mike. If you would take out your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to finish our study of 2 Corinthians 11 this morning as we uh, continue in this study. The title of our study is called Weakness is the Strength of God's People. Weakness is the strength of God's people. This past summer, I read a book about a Chinese Christian named Brother Yun. He was born in 1958 in a small village in Nanyang, China, which is located on the Yellow River, a few hundred miles southwest of Beijing. China became a communist country in 1949, and the Cultural Revolution began in China in 1966 when Yuan was just eight years old. One of the goals of the Communist Party was to rid the country of all religion, all religions. Well, when Yuan was 16 years old, his father was very, very ill, and Yuan's mother and his siblings began to pray for his dad, and God healed his father, and that led Yuan to becoming a follower of Jesus when he was 16 years old. He asked his mom. His mom was a quiet Christian. She was not devout. She was not outspoken. Um, They didn't have a Bible in their home. He started asking his mom questions about Jesus. And his mom said, Jesus is the Son of God, and all of his teachings are found in the Bible. But they didn't have a Bible. So Ewan asked his mother, where could I find the Bible? And she remembered that there was a man in a nearby village who had a Bible. So she took her son there, and when they went to the man's house, They knocked on the door, and she told him why they were there. He was so afraid of the communists that he would not show you in his Bible. But he did say this, pray that God will give you a Bible. So that young kid, 16 years old, went home, and he decided that he was going to begin to fast and pray that God would give him a Bible. His fast would be one small bowl of steamed rice a day, and then he would pray. He prayed and fasted for a hundred days when a knock came at his front door and he opened the front door and there were two men standing there, one holding a red bag. And when the man opened the red bag, there was the Bible that Ewan had been praying for. He began to just devour the Bible, just reading for hours at a time, memorizing scripture. And the more passionate he became about what he was learning in God's word, Then he began to share with other people and the Public Security Bureau got word of what he was doing and they arrested him. And Ewan spent the next 10 years of his life in and out of prison. While he was in prison, he was tortured. He was starved, he was beaten, he was tortured with electric batons and needles were rammed up under his fingernails. He tells the story of what happened to him one time when he was arrested. He said, as I was paraded down the streets, a police car slowly drove in front. And through the loudspeaker, they proclaimed, this man came from Henan to preach Jesus. He had seriously disturbed the peace. He has confused the people. Today, the Public Security Bureau has captured him, and we will punish him severely. I was made to kneel down in the dirt while officers punched me in the chest and in the face. 
and they repeatedly kicked me from behind with their heavy boots. My face was all covered in blood. The pain was unbearable, and I nearly lost consciousness as I lay on the ground. I lifted up my head, and I caught a glimpse of the people in the crowd. Some pitied me, and they wept for me. When I saw this, it really strengthened my faith. When I had the chance, I softly told one woman, please don't feel sorry for me. You should weep for the lost souls of our nation. Well, today, Brother Yoon is out of China. He's traveling around the world. He's organizing missionaries from China to go into the world. And he said that he believes God is rising up a generation of Chinese missionaries that are more brave and more courageous so that they will be willing to go into the most dangerous places in the world for Christians to live. And they are more brave and more courageous because of the persecution they have gone through by their own government. China is growing some of the strongest and bravest Christians in the world because of the suffering they have endured. Their motto in this movement, listen to this, their motto is sacrifice, abandonment, poverty, suffering, and death. Now can you imagine if we launched a new church start here in Oklahoma City and we hung a big banner up that said sacrifice, abandonment, poverty, suffering, and death. Come join us. (laughs) Yeah, just what I thought. The American church growth strategy is the exact opposite. I mean, I watch seminars online. I read articles that are put out. And I've found the secret if we want to grow Britain Christian church. You know, here's what we have to do. We have to cater to the wishes and demands of all of the people that come here. We have to tell them that Jesus is going to make their life better in the way they define better. And we need to market all of the wonderful aspects of Britain Christian Church while we put all of the other churches down. That's how you grow a church in America. Let me tell you, the church growth strategy in America is not that much different than the false teachers that were working in Corinth. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 11, and we will begin reading in verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. Paul says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. 
Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, and in danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my what? My weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever. He knows that I am not lying in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall, and I slipped through his hands. You see, in the eyes of the people of Corinth, the false teachers had everything that Paul lacked. They were confident. They were entertaining. And they could hold an audience in the palm of their hand with their powerful words of persuasion. Paul grew increasingly frustrated to the point where as much as he hated it, Paul knew that he had to climb in the ring and he had to fight according to their rules. Chuck Swindoll writes, Paul had no qualms about writing page after page about Jesus Christ, his saving work and our faith response to the gospel. He could pen long treatises on grace, practical instructions of the Christian life, and manuals for pastoral ministry. But when it came to pointing to his own accomplishments, Paul would rather hide under a rock than brag about himself. Something tells me that if Paul had to write a resume today, he would leave so much out about himself that he would never get a job. Even though Paul felt the need to pull out his resume in order to put the false teachers in their place. He makes it perfectly clear he was not doing as the Lord would speak. He was not doing as the Lord would have him do. He says in verse 17, In this confident self-boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I will too. I will boast. The many who are boasting in the way the world does is no doubt the false teachers that are in Corinth. They are swaying many of the people in the church and leading them into a cult of personality and away from the Lord. Paul says that he knew what was going on with them. He knew that they were leading the other people astray and that's why he feels the need to climb into the ring and to go blow to blow with them for what they have done. In verses 20 and 21, we can see the havoc that these false teachers have unleashed on the church. Paul sees the damage that's being done, and he just can't stand by quietly and let them get away with it. He writes in verse 20 and 21, In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you, or exploits you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or slaps you in the face, to my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. 
You see, folks, there is a big, big difference between servant leaders like the Apostle Paul and leaders of the cult of personality who are in it only for themselves, like the false teachers in Corinth. I've told you before, but I can't stress it enough. Absolutely nothing has changed from the day that Paul wrote these words to the church in Corinth to this very morning, right now. More than 30 years ago, a new church was started in Chicago. Harvest Bible Chapel was founded by a teacher named James McDonald. I listened to his sermons on the radio for years. And then it all started to fall apart. And it didn't start falling apart because people stopped going to church. Every Sunday, thousands upon thousands of people came to hear him teach the Bible. It all began to fall apart because the spotlight slowly shifted from being upon Jesus to being on the pastor. The elders saw the change in his behavior. They individually went to him to see if he was okay. They collectively set up a meeting to sit down with him to try and help him. But he didn't need help, of course, right? Well, more and more incidents were reported until finally on February the 12th, 2019, the elders of Harvest Bible Chapel had to let their founding pastor go after 30 years. Do you know how difficult that is? They had conducted an eight-month investigation. And in their investigation, this is what they found. Listen to this. That the pastor had a pattern of being disruptive, insulting, belittling, and verbally abusing others. He had used church funds, resulting in his own personal benefit. The investigation found that he had spent $171,000 of church funds on hunting and fishing trips. This is just one item that showed many, the many ways that he had misappropriated church funds for his own personal use. And last of all, they found his temper created a culture of fear and intimidation in the church. Boy, as I studied what Paul said about the false teachers in Corinth, my mind immediately went to what was going on in Chicago. Paul said of the false teachers in Corinth, they enslaved, they exploited, they took advantage of the people, they put on airs, they even verbally or physically abused the people in the church. We just don't learn from the past, do we? Paul never behaved in that way. Paul would never treat those that the Lord had given him to shepherd, to love, to disciple. He would never treat them in that way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul wrote, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You see, the two styles of leadership, they couldn't be more different. One seeks the limelight for themselves at the cost of others. The other seeks to serve regardless of whatever personal cost must be made. In a world where everybody is looking to stand out, to set themselves apart from the crowd, Jesus has the best advice for you and me as his followers. You want to stand out? Then stoop to serve. Then become a servant. The advice Jesus gave his disciples is still relevant today. 
Look at Mark chapter 10 with me. Beginning in verse 2, Jesus called them together and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Paul didn't create the servant, uh, the servant leadership model. He was simply seeking to follow in Jesus' steps. We can get some insight <clears throat> into who the false apostles were and those items that they placed at the top of their resume by reading verses 22 and 23. Paul uses what those false apostles clung to so tightly. He used it to show that he could match them line for line and item for item. Paul says in verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a crazy man. I am more. Paul dealt with those kind of leaders, those kind of false teachers in Galatia, as well as in Philippi. Those type of leaders, they set themselves apart from the common people with their impeccable pedigree and their religious superiority from the rest of us. When he wrote to the church in Philippi, Paul once again, he pulled out his blue blood pedigree. He read it all off. He listed every item. And then he get down to the bottom and he said, but you know what? All of that is garbage compared to the joy of knowing Jesus my Savior. Turn, look at Philippians chapter 3 with me, just so you'll know I'm not making this stuff up. It's straight out of the Bible. Look at verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, I have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. <clears throat> Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, resume building in the ancient world was really no different than resume building in the world in which you and I live. Resume building has to do with achieving greater and greater accomplishments, right? But the greatest resume in all of the world will not do you any good on that day in which we stand before God and we give an account of the life that we have lived. That's why Paul says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss 
for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. It's only through Jesus that you and I can gain a righteousness through faith. It is not a righteousness of our own, not something we accomplish because of our works. There's no way we can work our way to God. The false teachers had built their resumes in the same way that we are told to build ours today. They listed their accolades and their accomplishments. They highlighted their growing popularity and their widespread influence, not just in Corinth, but in all of Greece. They grabbed the spotlight. They were enjoying the limelight. And the best was yet to come. That line of thinking, the best is yet to come. That's still what we're selling today, isn't it? That's still what we're selling. The best is yet to come. I mean, every year, every year at graduation ceremonies around the country, some high-profile person with all of their gowns and stoles will stand before the kids and let them know, you can do it. Believe it and you can achieve it. The world is your stage. The best is yet to come, kids. Well, as Americans, the best is yet to come is defined in a way that is totally foreign to what God's Word says God's best for you and me is. God's best for you and me is very different from the way we Americans define the best is yet to come. And nobody was more aware of that than the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was getting his paperwork together so that he could go to Damascus and he could arrest all of the followers of Jesus. And he believed at that very moment he was living the dream. He was all the things that he wrote about in Philippians and Corinth. He was the most Hebrew of all of the Hebrews. He graduated top of his class, summa cum laude, as a Pharisee. And man, did he ace that course on legalistic righteousness. He crushed it. And on the road to Damascus, everything changed. He had no idea that the best truly was right in front of him. He was blinded by the brilliance of Jesus. I mean, literally blinded so that he could not see. Some of his men led him on into Damascus. And there, while he was in Damascus, praying that God would restore his sight, God had a plan of how he was going to do that, but it was not the way that Saul of Tarsus thought. God went to a man named Ananias, one of the Lord's followers, and he said, Ananias, there's a man named Saul of Tarsus who is here. He's blind. I want you to go to him, lay your hands on him, and, and his sight will be restored. Ananias did not like that task at all. And he voiced his concern. And the Lord in his tender way said, go. That man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Boy, that just doesn't make any sense. He is God's chosen instrument and God is going to show him how much he must suffer for his name. It doesn't make any sense to you and me. 
It doesn't make any sense to those who live in America and have been pumped full of the steroids of success. But we must remember what God told his people back in Isaiah's day. The prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, if you've been around here any amount of time, then you already know my favorite preacher ever, 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 is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon battled depression. I mean, deep, dark, very severe depression for months at a time. There were times that his wife Susanna said, I, I thought I would see my husband never preach again because of the darkness that he found himself in. But Pastor Spurgeon was, de was determined to see God's hand at work in every aspect of his life. Not just the best of days, but even in the worst days that Spurgeon had to endure. And do you know, Spurgeon prayed for that de depression to be lifted. He prayed that God would remove the depression from him, and God did not. Sometimes we're better than others, but he dealt with that dark depression all of the days of his life. Now, some today, some today would say, well, he just didn't have enough faith. He just didn't have enough faith. Or maybe there was sin in his life that brought about that depression. But do you know what Spurgeon said about his depression? About that overwhelming sense of darkness that he felt in his life? Here's what Spurgeon said. I have learned from it to be very tender with all of my fellow sufferers. You see, Spurgeon saw that there was a lesson for him to learn to help him minister to people who were suffering that he could only learn in the school of suffering. Amen. We don't like that. We want, we want to give our life to Christ, the next day hit the lottery, the next day move to South Beach and sip fruit drinks on the beach for the rest of our days. Isn't God good? But God's got a better plan for your life than that. Amen. In 1875, 1875, Spurgeon was speaking to some students who desired to be pastors one day. And he told them that Jesus' followers who have suffered greatly have, some, have something to offer those that are lost and don't know the Lord and suffering, that those who are successful and strong will never be able to offer if they have not suffered greatly. This is what he told his students. Christian ministers should therefore expect a special degree of suffering to be given to them as a way of forming them, forming them, molding and shaping them for Christ-like compassionate ministry. Christ himself was made like his weak and tempted brothers in order that he might help those who were tempted. And in the same manner, it is weak and suffering people that God has chosen to minister to the weak and to the suffering. Angels or supermen simply couldn't sympathize with human groans. Their very strength would only mock our weakness and thus mock the gospel. You know, I know that what Spurgeon told those young preachers 150 years ago still holds true to this day. 
But it's not just true of pastors. It's true of all of those who follow Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. If you have been crushed and then comforted by the Savior, then you will be more empathetic with people that are hurting. And you will be more bold and unashamed to share with them the comfort that has comforted you. I want you to look over 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 33. Look over those verses with me. We don't have time to read through them. Oh, I have time, but you don't. I know you're looking at the clock. I got all afternoon. I don't have Alpha till 5 o'clock. All of you that want to stay right... No, let's don't do that. <laughs> Look at those verses with me. I want you to see there in those verses, 23 through 33, you have a list. Not an exhaustive list, but an itemized list of some of the ways that Paul suffered as an ambassador of Christ. I do want to highlight one verse, verse 28. Besides all of the whippings and beatings and being stoned and left for dead and being hunted down by Jews and Gentiles, and that was all people at that time, the the world only consisted of Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. Not like today where we have a hundred different people groups. There were two, and all of them were opposed to Paul and his message. But aside from all of that, Paul says in verse 28, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Man, he loved those folks in Corinth. They were a mess. And they caused him such heartache and such grief, and yet he would not give up on them. Why did he not just write them off and let the false teachers have their way? I mean, he's tried over and over again. If you've been here and gone through this study of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, well, we've been in that study about as long, we've been there longer than Paul was in Corinth. I'll tell you why he wouldn't write them off. Because Paul had been so gripped by the grace of Jesus. He understood the depth of the forgiveness he had received from the Lord. And if the Lord could forgive him for what he had done, how dare he withhold forgiveness from others? You know, many other men and women throughout the ages have been so overwhelmed by the Lord's grace, they couldn't keep it to themselves. They had to tell somebody else. And they were willing to go anywhere to do whatever God led them to do to share that message. Let me give you one example. Dugald and Jeannie Lawson grew up in Scotland. They got married, and after they had been married, they heard the call. They were needing missionaries in China. And so the young couple said, we'll go. And that was in 1887. Dugald learned the Chinese language. He became an evangelist. His wife worked with the women and the children, sharing Jesus with them. And over the next eight years that they were in China, Jeannie lost five of their children, their biological children. It was a crushing blow. She became so depressed that some of the leaders of the mission organization said, we need you to go to Shanghai. Shanghai was the headquarters of the mission organization. We need you to go there to get some help so that hopefully you can become healthy again. Jeannie went to Shanghai, and then she went back to Scotland for a period of time. 
But then she rejoined her husband in China. She got more healthy. She rejoined her husband in China. And then in 1930, Dougal died. And Jeannie went back to Scotland. And she thought for good. She was now 70 years old. She thought it was for good. But after a short time in Scotland, she realized her heart, her soul, and her calling. It was in China. It was not in Scotland. So she went back to China. It didn't take long for her to realize that as a 70-year-old woman who didn't have a helper, she needed help, and she put out the word. Word got back, and a young lady in London, England, named Gladys Allwald, not five feet tall, who had yearned to be a missionary, and she went and took the test, and she flunked it royally. So she went back to being a maid. But Jeannie was in desperate need of a helper, and Gladys found out and said, I'll go. And she went. And those two women labored side by side until Jeannie became so ill she had to leave the mission field. And Gladys carried on. You can, read the, you can read a book about her called The Little Woman. Not five feet tall. Not five feet tall. <laughs> Long story short, she led so many people to Christ in China. And as she tells the story, and as Jeannie tells the story, both of those women, they talk about the trials, they talk about the troubles, they talk about the heartache that they endured, but they also say that the joy of serving the Lord transcended it all. Amen. You know, whether it be Paul ministering in Asia Minor and the ancient Middle East, or whether it be Jeannie and Gladys ministering in China, or whether it be you and me, as ambassadors of Christ in Oklahoma City. Let me tell you, we need to know our weakness is his strength. It truly is. Those things you think you are incapable of or what you are embarrassed about or ashamed of, God wants to use that to bring glory and honor to his name and to bring other people to Jesus. God does a work through the weaknesses of his people that can be done in no other way. Let me read to you just one more thing Brother Ewan wrote. The way to have God's presence is by walking through hardship and suffering. Did you hear that? The way to experience God's presence is to walk through hardship and suffering. It is the way of the cross. You may not be beaten or imprisoned for your faith, but I'm convinced that each Christian will still have a cross to bear in his or her life. In the West, it may be ridicule, slander, or rejection. When you're faced with such trials, the key is not to run from them or to fight them, but to embrace them as friends. And when you do this, you will never fail to experience God's presence and His help. Let me tell you, my friend, that line of thinking is totally foreign to you and me. And the only way that you can understand the truth of that statement is for you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, here I am. Lord, I want to die to myself so that I may live for you. Lord, send me wherever you need to send me. Use me however you want to use me. Lord, you can even use me up. I'm yours. At that time, you'll begin to understand 
the greatest joy in all of the life in all of life is to serve him not to build our own kingdoms not to have our own name recognized but to exalt his name if you're here this morning you're not a follower of jesus i want to invite you to do that that's the first call if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you want to receive him as Lord of your life, I want to invite you, come down to the front, give me your hand as you give Jesus your heart. That's the first step. You and I can get together this week, and we'll talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Also, if you're here this morning, you're looking for a church home, someplace to plug in, be part of a community of believers, then I want to invite you to come forward. We will welcome you with open arms. As we stand and sing this song of invitation, won't you come? Thanks for listening today. You can watch past sermons on our YouTube channel at Britain Church. We would love to see you on Sunday morning for one of our services at 8.30 or 10.40. Have a great week.